He's the man in the back of the room. Y con la voz de Dios. He's told U.S. presidents where to sit, CEOs where to go, and stars when to shine. But as he likes to point out, Who cares? I care. It's true, she cares. And so does he. He's entertainment and production agency owner and meeting and event master, Anthony Bellotta. She's his Agent 99, and you're about to be Bellottified. Hi, friends, and welcome to another episode of Bellotify, the one and only podcast about events, entertainment, and engagement. I'm Anthony Bellotta. I'm here every week with the always entertaining, always optimistic Alexia Cristina Postalides. Opa, Alex. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Happy, happy Tuesday. Happy Tuesday to you. So, what's on your mind today, Sir Bellotta? What's going on? Well, I'll tell you what's on my mind. Let's get tipsy! Today, I'm thinking about the excruciating importance of communication in our industry. And by that, I mean clear and efficient communication. Not always easy in a frenetic, fast-paced, constantly changing world, but absolutely necessary to the success of your endeavors. So be clear, as Brene Brown says, clear is kind, especially when it comes to expectations, timeframes, schedules, and logistics. Laying them out without hemming and hawing or minimizing with as much necessary detail as possible is key. Remember, you are the owner of your communication and there may be times when using your voice will prove more effective than your fingers which you can always follow up with an email if documentation is necessary. And two, be efficient. Sending out unwieldy documents may seem like the most beneficial way to get everyone on the same page, but you might be surprised to find out that most people will take a parting glance of your dearly beloved document and upon seeing nothing that pertains to them, will never look again. Highlight areas of focus for them to bring their attention to where it is needed or follow up with those follow up on those huge schedules and agendas with quick calls to ensure the recipients understand their part. And that is my tipsy. Do you agree, Miss Alex? I, you know what, I can't agree more. And I love that you're talking about communication because it follows across life in general, right? Um, whether it's business or friendships or family. So we have a saying in, you know, we Greeks. You uh -huh. ready for it? Yeah. Miliame metamathiamas. Means speak, we speak with our eyes. We speak with our eyes. Would you repeat that in Greek? Miliame metamathiamas. It's beautiful in, Isn't in it? Greek. Isn't yeah. it pretty? It's yeah. beautiful. And if you don't pay attention, it can get you into a world of hurt. So um, I... I always have a story, right? I always have a story. So we were um, getting ready for the baptism for Constantine and Constantina's daughters, right? My cousins. And they were trying to figure out who they wanted as the Nunanunno. Nunanunno's godparents in Greek. So Constantine was set on his brother and sister-in-law. But Constantina was set on her sister and brother-in-law. And they went back and forth until one day in a fit of frustration, Constantine yelled out, Ise pesmataris vaidaros. Oh. 
That sounds mad. It means you're as stubborn as an ass. Oh. Yeah. So Constantina took a deep breath, put a smile on her face and said, fine, your brother and sister-in-law, it is. But Constantine didn't pay attention. And over the next few weeks leading up to the baptism, she barely spoke to him. She refused to eat with him. She slept in the nursery. And every time he asked her what was wrong, she simply said, nothing, I'm fine. And he couldn't figure it out. And it was driving him crazy. So we asked Yaya, explained what was going on. And <laughs> Yaya just shook her head and said, oh, like you, you need to pay as much or even more attention to what isn't said than what is. Mm-hmm. Always notice the look in her eyes. And at that moment, Constantine realized the error of his ways, apologized profusely, and they compromised. And so it was his brother and her sister as the godparents. Wow. Well, we have the perfect guest for this then today. (laughs) Yes, we do. Okay, before we get started, if you're a new listener, please take this time to like and subscribe. Go ahead. We'll give you a sec. Why, thank you. Communication is definitely a tenuous uh, subject. Everybody approaches it differently. And so let's bring on our guest and uh, let's discuss this. Let's talk about it. So our guest today is a licensed marriage and family therapist and founder of The Relationship Place, a group practice specializing in evidence-based couples therapy known as the Gottman Method. She's a certified Gottman Method therapist and bringing home baby instructor. She also leads trainings at the Gottman Institute to help clinicians master the art of couples therapy. Where were you in my life a couple of years ago? <laughs> she is often featured on relationship podcasts such as The Practice of the Practice, The Practice of Therapy, Modern Therapist Survival Guide, and Relationship Advice to Name a Few, and host her very own podcast, The D Spot. She also regularly contributes to media publications and television appearances and is the resident relationship expert on the Cox Communication Show, I Do. And she'll be featured in an upcoming documentary, The Art of Couples Therapy. Please welcome the accomplished Dr. Dana McNeil. She sounds very important. I wish I could meet her. <laughs> I know. Who is this woman? <laughs> I don't usually have to suffer through hearing my bio. Hello. Thank you. <laughs> it's incredibly impressive. And, yes, it is. And we c- we'll get into it because it, it gets even more impressive. The fact that you haven't been doing this your entire life, you actually switched careers as well to start doing this, which in itself is an impressive thing. But before we get into that, we always start the show with something we call 10 Quick Questions. 10 Quick Questions. 10 Quick Questions? Yay! Great. I'm ready after the frenetic, fast-paced beginning that we talked about. So, okay. Give me. Ready. I'm ready. Great. She's ready. Alex, you have the clock. Two minutes. Nope. Two minutes on the clock. The first answer oh, that comes timed. to your mind. It's like name that tune. Okay. It is. I'm ready. It is. Pressure. <laughs> pressure. All right. Question number one. Dana, are there coincidences? No. Number two, what do you love most about what you do? Oh, the relationships I get to have with my clients. And when was the last time you tried something new? Today. What was it? I tried to have a conversation in a different way than I usually have it because I was hoping for a different outcome. So I tried something different. I hope it worked for you. 
I do too. I'll let you know. <laughs> <laughs> let me know. <laughs> so what is the first word that comes to mind when you think about you? Uh, complicated. Ooh, that's a good one. What is the most, <laughs> I feel you, believe me. <laughs> what is the most memorable live concert, show, theatrical event, festival you've ever experienced? Oh gosh, that's like, which of my child is my favorite? Well, I just recently, for the first time, saw Boy George a couple of weeks ago, so that stands out. I saw him in Las Vegas with the, you know, the culture club that I've never got to see before as an 80s kid, and it was amazing. So we'll go Wow, wow, good show? Yeah, oh, so well done. It was at the Wynn in Vegas, and it was, you know, mm. such a spectacle. It was beautiful. Amazing. That's so uh, cool. Do you think Mickey Mouse upstages Minnie? All the dang time. <laughs> dang it. <laughs> What's the one thing you wish you could stop doing? Oh, eating myself up. I think most of us are do a really good job at that. It's either you're doing that or you're loving yourself so much it's disgusting. It feels like one or the other, right? Uh, sure. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Is there, a is there a notable relationship, historical, contemporary, or fictional, that you admire? Hmm. A relationship that I admire. The Gottmans. I mean, I, I really do. I, they do represent everything that are the tenets of the theory that I practice, so I do admire them. They walk their talk. They do. They drink the Kool-Aid and, uh, you know, <laughs> spit it back out. Right, before they poured it for everyone else. That's good. <laughs> What did you want to be when you grow up? What, excuse me, let me put that in the right tent. What do you want to be when you grow up? Oh, right. I, at one point, and I still think it would be fun, I used to aspire to be a veterinarian um, and I love animals. So I continue to want to do things with animals. And lastly, is life about having what you want or wanting what you have? 100% wanting what you have. Is that easy to do? No, but it can be learned, and I think it's important. I mean, we call it gratitude, right? I mean, you, gratitude. Can, you can aspire yes. for other things and be simultaneously grateful for the things that you have acquired. You can be, you can want more, but still love what you have. A hundred percent. Yeah. That's mm -hmm. great advice. Great advice. Well, thank you for playing. Did I meet the time crunch or my kick? You out? did. Nope. You are good. <laughs> okay. you, you've got a little time to spare. You do. Well, I am an overachiever. So good. Well, <laughs> All right. I, I, then I have to tell you then that you probably got through those questions faster than anybody else. That yeah. Well, that's because I gave one word too. answers. You didn't tell that's me right. I had to elaborate. No, <laughs> I didn't. I didn't. It's quick, quick, quick. Yeah, that was perfect. So what about coincidences can't be real? What is it about coincidences? I think it's that same idea that there is no such thing as luck, that you've created your luck. So there's circumstances that you've been doing in the past that are setting you up for the things that are happening now. It's kind of like karma, right? Or it's this idea that like, if I view my life a certain way, then it's putting me in a position where I'm going to end up in a certain place. And so that isn't a coincidence. I actually just spent months researching this called determinism. Okay. And that's your life is cause and effect. Yeah. Yeah. 
And I do think you can call in things if that makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. I'm putting out an energy, I'm focusing on something, I'm putting my thoughts into it. And then those things show up and we call them coincidences, but that's where I've been spending my time and energy. So of course I'm bringing it in. That's great to hear. So I've been reading a lot lately about the role of relationships in our lives and their correlation to happiness. Should I believe what I read? Yes, I definitely do. I uh, I love the research that the UK has been doing on loneliness, and there's a whole ministry of loneliness. And what we have been finding is if we don't have connection, it's the same as like, you know, smoking a pack of cigarettes every day. It does the same amount of damage to our, our health. And we are connected people. We're, we're born to be part of a tribe and to take care of each other and to have a dependency on each other, not in a non-healthy way, but I do better when I feel like somebody knows I exist. If I, if I don't believe somebody would notice if I didn't make it home from the airport, then what am I doing in my life? I don't have a sense of purpose or community. And so, yes, relationships are a crucial part of how we view ourselves and how we participate in society. You say that everyone wants to be heard. I think I read that in your bio. And that's something that I've been saying for years and years and years. I think we probably mean something different when we say it. Uh, But I'd love to hear more about people wanting to be heard. How does that show up in life? Yeah, we want to have somebody acknowledge that we're valid and having the feelings that we're having, that people are not quick to rush us to a conclusion or to a fix. And I think that that's what we tend to do a lot, because not because you're not important, but because most of us feel uncomfortable sitting with uncertainty. We, so, we feel uncomfortable watching our friends or people that we care about in pain. And so inadvertently, we try to fix their feelings. And what we're doing unintentionally is telling them that their feelings are not important. Mm-hmm. And so when I say feeling heard, it's I'm sitting with the discomfort of you having a big emotion that I don't know what to do about. And I'm not trying to chase it off or tell you to do it differently or manage you. I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. You should feel that way. I can totally validate that for you. And what's the worst part? What's that like for you? Like exploring and asking questions and stepping into the shoes of that person so that when you respond with an emotional response that mirrors that person they're they're having the impression that they're completely okay with who they are you validated them and it makes sense and that you totally appreciate who that who they are there's something magical when that happens in our relationships Mm. I love that you just said everything you just said. I I was having this conversation in the wee hours of the morning with my daughter last night. And we were talking about discussing the the exact same thing. Yeah. You know? And, And I wonder, I had a conversation similar with a really close friend of mine. And I wonder if I... I I gave him the right advice. It sounds like I did based on what you said. His brother is diabetic and is not good about his diet, won't get up and exercise. I mean, is just sort of giving in to, to the disease. And my friend is doing everything he can to get his brother to get up out of the chair, to get him to eat better. And I simply said to my friend, you know, your time is probably better spent just being with him and just enjoying his company rather than trying to get him to change his mind because he's not. Did I give him the right advice? 
Perfect. I mean, uh, to kind of expand a bit, it's he also lives in the world of media and internet. He knows that he should be getting up. He's probably got tons of physicians that are like, you should get up. You should walk around. You should do some exercise. When we put ourselves in a parent role with our friends and family, we have to not be surprised when they respond in a defensive way, like the five-year-old child that you're treating them as, right? right? Versus a conversation where you're like, I feel really lost right now watching you succumb to this disease and feeling like I don't have any power to do anything. Mm. I'm in a lot of pain right now watching this happen. Is it okay that I share that with you that I'm concerned that maybe you're giving up or that I'm not doing enough to help you feel motivated? And can you remind me that that's not my job? Like that's a meaningful conversation. Wow. Thank you for that because I was going to follow this up with as the friend, as the the caregiver or loved one, how do you deal post when the person passes? How do you deal with the shame of did I do enough? Could I have made them do more? Or, you know, because there's a lot of, there's a lot of shame having gone through it. There's a lot of shame associated with that. Well, that's also a sneaky way of us trying to feel like we're back in control because we don't control what happens to anyone. And so when we it when we bring on that guilt and shame, that's us trying to reestablish control. Because if I would have done something that I could have controlled the outcome, there was an option. I didn't have to be uncomfortable. There was just <laughs> something that I should have done differently. And then I would have been able to manage what happens to me. And that's just simply not true. Right. We're going to have things happen that don't make sense and that we don't have control about. And that's just the reality. And none of us like that. Do we have control of anything? We have control of how we respond to things. There you go. We have control of asking for our needs. We have control of honoring that we're doing the best that we can. And when we know better, we do better. We keep looking in the rearview mirror and magnifying it instead of looking through the windshield and wondering what can we do differently moving forward. And I'd just like to point out that the way you phrased the question about helping someone was without judgment, with tons of empathy, and it, it comes across that way. It's beautiful. There's no reason to get defensive when when it comes at you that way. It's beautifully stated. How did you learn this? <laughs> I mean, that is kind of part of the work that you do as a Gottman therapist and as a couples therapist is I have to learn that language is my sales technique, right? I'm asking for everyone that I'm in a relationship to do a favor for me. I'm not required to do anything by virtue of the fact that I'm in a relationship with you. Anything I ask for you and you decide to give me is a gift. So if I don't show you what's in it for you and I immediately put you on defensiveness, I'm not going to get anything that I want. And I'm not holding you in a positive perspective. I can't believe that you're doing things to hurt me. I have to believe that there just must have been some sort of misunderstanding because we are not the same people. We don't view the world the same way. We haven't had the same life experiences. We don't have the same expectations. One of the phrases that we use around my office is, can you be curious versus furious? 
right? Mm. They're not doing this to you because they're trying to upset you or neglect you in some way. They just don't think the way that you do. So how do you approach it in a way where you are being vulnerable about what's happening for you and not asking them to take care of you? And how do you do this when you're riled up? <laughs> do you take a step back first? You gotta, what, what, you gotta recognize that you're riled. So we, we call that in the Gottman world being flooded or in lay people's terms, I'm in fight or flight or freeze. You guys are probably familiar with yes. that, right? That's yes. my biological function that gets me ready for action because I gotta protect myself. Something doesn't feel okay, right? I also have a responsibility to recognize when I'm in that state because I'm incapacitated. What that means is my brain has been hijacked. I'm not doing a math problem. I'm saving my life. And so there is a biological function that you start shutting down your brain and you go into your instinctual protective mode. And that is the worst time to have a discussion about the status of your relationship. Mm. You have to take a breather. You have to let the other person know that you're going to come back right? Maybe even talk about the time frame of when you're going to come back and then you go and you do something to calm yourself down in preparation that you're going to come back and have that important conversation. I want to ask you a question because, you know, when, when couples get married and they're having their little pre-marriage celebrations, the a piece of advice that is always given that I personally disagree with is don't go to bed mad. Mm. Now, the reason I disagree with it is because I know I might be overreacting. Mm -hmm. So let me sleep on it. Mm -hmm. But I would love to hear what your thoughts on it. Am I totally off base with that? Or should you just make sure it's fixed before you, even if the timing isn't right? Yeah, I think that what you're mentioning is a really good point. We have different thresholds as individuals, and we have different caliber of disagreements. And so if it's been a really big one and I'm not in a good space right now already, and this was just the cherry on top, I might need 24 hours, right? We don't want to go more than 24 hours because what we start doing is perseverating on the hurt. And then I want to get away from you. And then I isolate and then I go off and lick my wounds. And I'm just like, this relationship isn't important anyways, right? That creates its own problems. But it's more than okay to say, hey, can I sleep on this? And I want to like start fresh tomorrow morning and talk about this. What you're talking about is I did that important piece that I mentioned, which is I'm going to tell you when I'm going to come back and talk about it so that you don't feel like you're being abandoned and this relationship isn't important to me. I am just recognizing that I am extremely overwhelmed. I don't think I'll respond in a way that's helpful for our relationship. So I want to give our relationship a gift. I want to sleep on it. I'm going to take a walk tomorrow. I'm going to do some journaling. I'm going to collect my thoughts. And then I am going to come back when I told you I was, and we're going to talk about this. Mm. It's okay to take 24 hours, not for every single thing. Like right. I didn't put the cheese knife in the dishwasher the way you wanted me to. Right. I mean, which is symbolic <laughs> of other things. I'm not, yes, it is. That's not a big yes, deal. it is. But you know, maybe that one I go in the bathroom and wash my hand and shake it off and look in the mirror and go like, I love my partner. I love my partner. I love my partner. <laughs> okay, I'm ready. We're going to talk about this. Mm. Can you change the way you feel about something? Is it possible to actually change the way you feel? Yes. I think that if you are mindful of maybe changing your perspective or broadening your perspective, that that can be a cause and effect to changing the way that you feel because you're looking at 
other things and looking at why I'm so emotionally attached to the perspective that I first had, which I call my story, right? I'm looking for things to validate my story because I'm really invested in this story. I think it makes me feel safe. I have this unconscious bias that everything is proof that that story exists. When I sit down with pen and paper and I'm like, why might that not be true? What's some proof of the fact that they do love me versus that they're just doing this to irritate me? Then maybe I can get into a more even ground and I can start pointing out the reasons that, okay, maybe I'm just having a rough day or I'm got I'm caught up in my story. So I think that that can help you get to that change of feeling that you're asking about. Are there relationships that are simply not fixable that you've encountered? And if so, how do you approach that? So I just want to clear up. It's not my job to decide whether or not couples are fixable or not, because it's not my relationship. So I don't get to be invested in the outcome. What I do want to do is have my couples have the best relationship possible. And if that means that they decide that this relationship is not worth going through any more heartache, doing any more work on, they're not interested in like participating in it any longer, I'd prefer that they end it with me in like a safe space. But I don't ever get to have an opinion about whether or not they should be together or not together. I might, that might sound like I'm vague and avoiding your question, no. but that's really my perspective. Well, no, I appreciate I, I, that. Yeah. But I do wonder this, what happens when they're coming back week after week after week and you're seeing no progress whatsoever? Yeah. Will you say this isn't working out or will you, what is your progress? What's your, what your protocol there? I would point out that we don't seem to be making progress, but that's with an asterisk that I also have to be mindful that I, as a therapist, I think there's a trash truck outside. Um, I, as a therapist, cannot just view it from my perspective that I want you to be 100% better and anything less than that is not a win, right? Some couples are not going to get 100% better. They might get 15% better and that 15 has made all the difference so that mm. they can stay together until their kids graduate from high school or or do they get through retirement or whatever that thing is, right? But I typically, because I'm a pretty direct therapist, I'll be like, so kids, We've been coming on for like a year every week and we kind of keep finding ourselves in the same place. Could we reevaluate what our goals are? How are we doing? Does this still feel effective? What would you like us to be doing differently? How would you like to feel about this relationship? Let's get some input on what we're doing. And then I might have to have a conversation about how motivated are we to make a change because some couples say they're motivated but they're incredibly freaked out about what happens if the dynamic changes we know how to maneuver in this space we don't know what it's going to look like if we do things differently and so the enemy that you know is sometimes better than the one that you don't know Mm -hmm. and so there is resistance to change even though from the outside that makes sense that they would want to change but we don't know if the change will work Right. And we don't know how hard it will be. And we we're kind of caught in our pattern. And even though it's not a great connection, it's still a connection. And so we're willing to tolerate it. Right. Right. So meeting an event professionals of anything but a routine life, Dr. Dana, travel and long late hours are standard fare, which can wreak havoc on a relationship. 
What advice might you have for those of us trying to balance professional success with the very real requirements of a meaningful relationship? Yeah. So tell me about this travel time. Is there time to connect with your partner or do you not like even have a chance to like have a phone call at some point during the day? Well, I think it depends. Uh, there are times when it's just not possible when you're leading into the the opening of something, the start of something, and you're basically just nonstop. But there are probably moments when over the course of travel, mm -hmm. okay. communication can occur, maybe not on the phone, maybe through text, okay. maybe through some other way, but for sure. So I'm what I'm hearing is I may not have a lot of time, so I need to make it quality versus quantity. Mm. Right. Right. So what what might that look like a quality conversation? So we practice something in the Gottman method called a stress reducing conversation, and it's a 20 minute conversation. So hopefully people that are involved in this line of work could find three or four times during a week, 20 minutes to talk to their partner and participate in the stress reducing conversation. And what that means is that's 10 minutes for each person to talk about the things that are causing them anxiety or stress. And sometimes that's good things too, right? Getting a new job can create anxiety or stress. But what that is, is I'm showing understanding and support and shared emotion. Right. So if I'm getting on the phone with you and I'm like, hey, babe, how's it been at that conference? And you're like, oh, my God, like supplies didn't show up on time and the extension cords don't reach anything. I'm making things up because I don't know exactly what they're doing. So I no, you're doing well, very well, very you know, well. Nobody's on time. <laughs> like the supplies are like lost and they, the UPS truck didn't get here on time. All the things. Right. Mm -hmm. like, like we talked about at the beginning, the old way of doing things would be like either one, like, oh, I'm sure you'll get it sorted. So anyways, about the kids, right? Mm -hmm. Or that's not a big problem. I'm sure you'll work it out. And then your partner gets silent and they want to get off the phone and you're wondering what went wrong, wah, wah, mm -hmm. wah, right? Mm -hmm. Because what I was looking for is somebody to be like, oh my God, I'm so proud of you. Look at all that stuff that you're taking on. That is what's been the worst. What is it that's been the hardest? What would have been better if you could have seen this? Like, what is what feels the most stressful? And then I'm going to mirror that emotion. Like, I can't believe you're able to do this. You're a freaking rock star. I can't believe all this stuff that you're able to do and still put this show on and still not yell at everybody or whatever that looks like. Right. And then I might say something like, what would feel helpful for us to talk about right now? Or what do you need from me right now? Or what are you looking forward to when you come home so that I can make sure that we carve out some time to do that? Cause I really miss you. That doesn't take more than 10 minutes. And I feel very heard. I feel very understood and I feel valued because I'm not trying to shy away from, I'm not trying to talk you out of your stress. I want to walk through your stress with you. I can't do it for you, but you certainly are not going to do it alone. And I'm definitely not going to side with the enemy. And, and that gets back to that. I can't necessarily fix this, but I can certainly validate it and be there as a, a, a sounding board. Because I know I, I wouldn't know how to fix my partner's job. I don't know where to find the extension cord or to who to yell at and to who to get on the walkie talkie with. I have no idea, but I do know you and I do care about how this is impacting you. And as long as I give you the impression, 
this sucks and I'm not going anywhere. And if you need to text me every time somebody irritates you, I will be here. You are not going through this alone. I am your best friend. I'm your ride or die. I wish I could be there to slay the dragons for you versus I got my own problems, man. Yeah. <laughs> Boy, talk I think about, one of the, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, talk about a stress reducing conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, That's what we're looking for. And it doesn't right. need to take hours and hours. And it doesn't take very much from me if I take off the plate that I have to fix your feelings. That's where the anxiety in those conversation comes because I can't stand to see you upset. And especially for my male clients, I need to be your superhero. I mm. need to save the day and I need to come fix you. And I can't, I can't fix your feelings. So I'm just gonna shut down because I feel like a failure and I'm gonna try to change the subject. I'm gonna talk about something different because I feel bad about my inability to fix you. And that does not read that way. What that reads is, you don't care, I'm on my own. See you later, alligator. Mm -hmm. I think one of the worst phrases I've ever heard, and I've heard it often, is you're crying about that? Ugh. That's not a big deal. Why are you crying over that? Yeah. yeah. It doesn't make me feel heard or seen or validated. That makes me feel angry and right? I want to punch you. Mm -hmm. right. <laughs> <laughs> or better yet, stop crying or I'll give you something to cry, <laughs> to about. cry about. Yeah, that, right. That's the one I remember. You say that clients often feel shame and guilt about the fact that they need therapy. Why is there still stigma around therapy? Isn't it more widely accepted these days? Therapy for an individual is we're doing a really good job in society, like, you know, looking at mental health as a necessity, especially since COVID. I mean, it got like all kinds of street cred, thank goodness. And some of my clients are like, it's like going to the spa. It's something I do for myself. And I'm like, go, right? But there still is this sense that if we can't work it out as a couple, there's something wrong with us, right? That we are supposed to know how, if you really love me, you and I will figure it out. And I'm like, but with what tools? Mm -hmm. That's like going to Home Depot and being like, I've got this picture to hang. I thought this saw would be fine. No, no, don't give me any tools. I'll just keep pounding it against the wall for six years and wondering why my picture isn't getting hung, mm -hmm. right? And so right. there is no seeking of other tools because that would have to imply that you don't know your way around the tool shed. And nobody wants to mm. feel like that. And we're not talking about that. Like you don't go out to dinner with other couples and they're like, girl, we had such a humdinger this weekend. Let me tell you about this tool that our therapist gave us and we are doing a lot better, right? We don't, <laughs> no. we don't do that. No, we do not. We hide yes. all of those things. Yes. And then we have social media and everybody's like hugging and happy and pictures at the beach. Mm. And I'm like, I don't like you right now. And we're certainly not right. taking pictures like that. Oh, we must be doing something wrong. Let's just stay off social media for five minutes and go fight with each other again. Or right. let's just let's just book a vacation. That'll fix it all. We don't need to talk about anything. Mm, or have so, a baby. Yeah. Uh, sure. Another sure. delightful option. Yes. Or one of my unfortunate findings is that sometimes clients are just opening up their relationship. I can't deal with this problem. So I'll just bring more people more, in. That, more, that right. won't be a problem. <laughs> no. How do you address, you know, the toxic positivity in our society? I think that I personally try to do a really good job of normalizing that we are all there. I do not come at you with 
jargon or therapy words. And I'll be like, here's what it looks like in the McNeil household. There's your white socks again in the corner of the room, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. it's like, we have to normalize at our level that we're real people, therapists, that we have real relationships, that we've had all the same struggles as you. There's no shame in the game. We just need better tools. And so I think once our clients feel validated and that they see themselves in the work that we do, then they start to embrace it more, but they have to make a choice to be vulnerable. So my job Mm -hmm. is to show them that it's a good bet for them, that Mm -hmm. I'm a safe place for them to take that risk because it really is a risk. And that's why I said in our flash round that my relationships with my clients are so gratifying because I am let into a space that the average person is not led into and I do not take that for granted. So I think our attitude as therapists and like podcasts like this, where we're talking about the necessity and you guys are all rolling your eyes and be like, "Mm, that's my relationship too. Like then we can start a better conversation about why are we so scared of it? Hmm. So what about self-care, Dr. Dana? Would you give us your thoughts around the importance of self-care and maybe even setting boundaries? Yes, good. I like that you said self-care and boundaries in the same sentence. Good job, Anthony, because it is a, <laughs> it, it is self-care, right? Because if I am so overextended that I have nothing left to give myself and I view my self-care as taking care of you and the other person doesn't view that as anything other than you wouldn't be doing that if you didn't want to, then we're setting ourselves for an imbalance, for frustration, for a big blow up, and for me to feel neglected and not heard and not appreciated and a mess, right? And so that boundary is I'm not going to say yes when I mean no. I'm not going to say no when I mean yes. I'm going to tolerate you feeling uncomfortable because I cannot simultaneously ask for my needs and take care of you at the same time. Mm. Could I also throw in there that setting boundaries has to be done with conviction and responsibility? In other words, if you if you decide not to set a boundary and say yes instead of saying no when you really mean no, then you kind of have to own that, right? And you can't throw it back in somebody's face later and said, well, I said yes, but I really meant no. And there's a tendency for us to not want to own that because we feel like we're doing it for somebody else. Is is that a fair assessment? It is. And I like how you brought that up because what that does is that allows you to be a victim on top of it. Right. And so you're not taking responsibility for making a choice. It may not have been a fantastic choice. I now regret it. And I'm going to move forward and come forward and say, I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have said yes because I really didn't have the time and now I'm feeling overwhelmed. And guess what? I may not continue to be able to do it or I'm going to let you down in some way or I'm not going to do it again. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, what you're saying is and I, I, I think an important point to talk about since we're talking about boundaries is boundaries is a kind of manipulative, sneaky control thing. 
mm-hmm. because I believe in my, you know, codependent mind that if I make myself invaluable to you, if you can't imagine mm-hmm. your life without me in it, because I do such a good job taking care of you or meeting your needs or anticipating what you might need, that I will make sure that you never leave me and therefore I don't end up alone. Right. And so most of my clients don't see that little twist. But what you're doing is you actually then think you have control because their life will not be the same if you're not in it. And therefore, I have some negotiation power so that when I really need something and this is all an internal conversation, I'm not Mm -hmm. having it with anybody else. When I really need something, you're going to want to take care of me the way that I've been taking care of you. And so I've got like a little tally going on in my mind. And then when I get real angry is like, but you should see that I need things. Look how good I take care of you. You didn't show up for me and you didn't ask me to, right? Mm -hmm. And so it is like a very subtle controlling thing that we do when we don't have healthy boundaries because we think it's going to serve us in the long-term game. I want to ask. Yeah, complete sense. It's beautiful. (laughs) And actually, Anthony, I really appreciate that question because that's been something that I've been um, working on over the last year in the therapy that I've been going through my personal therapy and, and everything. And I, and I, uh, I love that taking responsibility for your decisions and your actions and your choices. Yeah. I want to ask you really quick about the word selfish, Mm. because I have come to redefine that word as far as me being selfish with my time or with what I need. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that word. Um, it's full of self, right? Because <laughs> that is where I need to be. I need to constantly be checking in with myself. I need to make sure that I have the capacity to follow through on the things that I have promised or that are important to me or that make my life meaningful or give me a sense of purpose. And if I don't have the fuel in my tank to make those happen, then I probably need to reevaluate how am I going to go get some more fuel in the tank. I go to the gas station, right? Selfishness is I am seeing that I don't have anything left to give, so I need to go regroup. Thank you for that. I like that. It's being selfish Mm -hmm. so that you can refuel, not so that everything can go your way every time, everywhere, right? It's a a tactic to be used so that you can be more giving and generous, right? Mm -hmm. If you hold some back for yourself. What about... In business, we hear a lot about the importance of mindfulness and leadership, but how important is a practice of mindfulness on personal relationships? I think it's important, and I think you have different ways that you can talk about what it means. For me, mindfulness is for me to be grounded enough to understand why I do what I do, and so I can only do that with reflection because If we get into conflict, at some point, I'm going to have to take responsibility for the things that are my stuff. There's the me stuff, and then there's the we stuff, right? Mindfulness to me is I have sat with the uncomfortable parts about myself. I've done the work that I need to do. And then I bring that to my partner when we're in conflict. And I say, here's what I know about myself. I get triggered here. This is what happens. This is my story that comes up. If you're willing to give me the gift of 
asking me how I'm doing or responding in this way or like doing a corrective experience from what I saw my parents do, that would mm. help me feel safe and secure in this relationship. And I'm being mindful that you're not required to do it, but it would be meaningful to me. And I think it would help our relationship. Mm. And what about a sense of humor? Especially that is one of the self. that is one of the um, indicators of a successful relationship, and what we um, have found in our research at the Gottman Institute is that, interestingly enough, same-sex partners excel at that as a coping skill in conflict, and they are much more successful in resolving conflict more quickly because the use of humor as a coping skill and a way to like reset and repair is actually something that's more innately present in same-sex partnerships and they actually do better at repair and restoration because of this use of humor so yes that is for me when i see that happening in my client's relationship i'm like good for you let's not do it all the time like we can't just like make everything a big joke but yes i I definitely agree with you that that is a, a huge sign of success if you can bring that into your relationship. And why do you think same-sex couples are more equipped for that? Is it a, a you don't have the dynamic of male versus female? No, not necessarily. It's just sort of like, well, for instance, in... Um, lesbian relationships, right? There is more of an importance placed on being equals and inequality, right? And so those are some of the tenets that the Gottman method has seen is what makes a successful relationship is that when there's an equal responsibility for making sure that the relationship is successful. When we don't view somebody as being required to do something, there's not a sense of expectation that anything, this idea that anything that I do for my partner is my responsibility because I'm in a relationship. I can't take them for granted that they require work, that I'm willing to do the work. These are just personality types that when they click together, they are often more successful in doing repair attempts. And it's just part of the research that we have found is that one of the very successful techniques is using humor and it just seems to be more prevalent. How do you tell have you worked with any gender fluid couples and does this all work for gender fluid couples as well? Communication works for everybody. For everyone. Right? Because here's what I tell my clients, because sometimes they're hesitant, right? They're in the guilt and shame. Sometimes they're like, I'm going to give it a session. And if I don't like what I see, I'm out of here, right? Or mm -hmm. they come with the intention that they're going to drop their partner off on the couch with me and uh, get out of their relationship. So I have to let you know that I don't expect that you're going to be successful. I don't know anything about my couples, but what I do know is that the common denominator in all of the relationships is them. And so it's an investment in yourself. You need communication techniques. You have partners You in business. You have siblings. You have the person in Sprouts that tries to take my cotton candy grapes, right? I need to right. have a communication <laughs> style that works for me. So right. this is an investment in yourself. It will never not behoove you to have learned how to have healthy communication. Mm -hmm. And I love those cotton candy grapes. <laughs> I hear you. They're in right now. And the <laughs> oh. sumo tangerines, go get some. I I'm going to have to. I think Trader Joe's has them too, by the way. Oh, all right. Thank you. Just FYI. <laughs> so we're on a time crunch this morning. Yes. So it's time to get to the nitty gritty. Five questions that we end the broadcast with. <gasps> The Bellotified Five. 
Dr. Dana, what is your golden rule? Um, everything is happening for you, not to you. Everything is happening for you, not to you. Can you just elaborate a teensy bit? I think that what I like to believe is that nothing's coming at me, that there is always a reason for what I'm experiencing that's going to serve me down the road. And so it helps me to like not get in my head about why people are doing things. I It doesn't allow me to get victimized. This is all just information that I don't know how I'm going to use until later. So that's kind of like my personal motto about how I view my life and what things happen to me. It sounds like you have a great deal of patience as well and the ability to take in all of this information for a later date is not easy. We always just want to spew it out at that uh -huh. moment. So what are some of the things that you tell yourself when you're in that moment and you just want to spew? Do you have any dialogue that you can share? Yes, this is temporary. This is temporary. This is a this, season. This is right? a season. I don't know that this is not going to turn out well. I don't know that this isn't going to be better than I thought it was. It's just going to be different. And I don't know that different is wrong. It's just different. And sometimes I get scared of change because I think I'll be out of control. Thank you for that. Do you ever look back at things that happened to you and ask yourself what you may have done to bring uh, it to you? Yeah. Is that a, is that a general course of, 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 of action for you? Do you always look um, in first? I do have my own, you know, we're all recovering in some way from some story that we told ourselves growing up and coping through our childhood. Yeah, I, t I think I tend as a rule to try to find what I could have done differently because that's my sneaky way of being in control. Because if I don't think that it's somebody else's fault, then that feels like I don't have any power and I don't like not being in control. I am a type A personality with red hair in case people are listening to this. <laughs> I don't I don't really like not feeling like I have control or somebody's got something over me. So um yeah, that's I got it. I have to kind of keep reminding myself that no, this is maybe not my thing to fix. Maybe I just need to like step back for a minute, collect myself, make sure I know what my boundaries are, and then I'll just wait until the appropriate time versus charging forward. Mm -hmm. What is one daily habit you have that you strongly believe contributes to your success? I think everybody should have a morning miracle routine. And if you've not read about that before, it's you need to start your day in a structured way because the world is going to come at you. So I get up at the same time every day. I do a little bit of reading and journaling. I eat my oatmeal with blueberries and walnuts. I take my dog for a walk and listen to a podcast and I do yoga. And that is what, and most of us will skimp in the morning time. Like that is my big tip for you. Don't just like put the alarm clock off. Alex, is that you raising your hand over there? Don't just turn that alarm clock off and like jump in the shower and hit it. You have not given yourself any time to like stabilize and get yourself centered because mm -hmm. the world is going to come at you it, it whether you want it to or not right. something's going to come at you so if you have not found a way to mindfully ground yourself you're not giving yourself the best shot at starting the day mm -hmm. in an optimal outcome that's beautiful advice it is. 
Thank you. Alex, Alex. I know. I'm horrible in the morning. I am. I am it's my a, own worst enemy in the morning. You're horrible is better than most people. <laughs> Not in the morning. I will give you that. Not in the morning. I am the one that jumps up. As soon as I get out of bed, I make my bed. That's like okay. the very first thing I do. And then just start going, you know, oh, because I'm right. just, I don't get up early enough to give myself time. Yeah. And I, I am working on trying to be better about this. So add one small thing, instead of beating yourself up, look, not the rear view mirror, girlfriend, look out the windshield. And what do I want to see in the windshield? What's my goal? What would I like to feel differently? I like that. That's a beautiful way of looking at it. I take that. I take that as a, as a challenge uh, of a positive challenge. And baby steps, baby steps too, Alex, you know, 10 minutes earlier. Yes. 15 minutes earlier, 20 minutes earlier. I love those baby steps. Uh, when no one is listening, Dr. Dana, what are the things you tell yourself? Huh. Well, the good things are the bad things because uh, I'm just as complicated as the rest of you are. Uh, the bad things are is I'm not lovable. People don't understand me. I'm going to end up alone. All those things that we all say to each other. And then I have to balance that out. Like, why are you saying that? What's that from? What What's the evidence to support that that's not true? What's five things that you're grateful for right now? We need to get some perspective. And that's kind of like a constant battle that I have going on throughout the course of the day. I don't mind sharing that with you, but we all have, we all have our stuff. Okay. Thank you for sharing that with us because we do tend to think that other people have it much better than we do. Nope. Yeah. What is one change you'd like to see in the world? Oh, so many, just one. Um, I would like us to take more personal responsibility. That is like one of my huge pet peeves. Oh, I love that. <laughs> yes. I, I just, I don't, it doesn't cost me anything to say, wow, that must have hurt your feelings. I'm sorry. I didn't, and you know, I didn't intend it to land that way with you. That doesn't mean there isn't a little asterisk in my head that says, well, you all, you heard that wrong on what your problem is, right, but right. it doesn't cost me anything to say, wow, I participated in something that didn't feel good to you that that I can't imagine how hard that is for you. I'm incredibly sorry that I participated in something that caused you pain. You have a way of saying that that feels very sincere and real <laughs> uh, and conciliatory. It, it, it sounds lovely coming out of your <laughs> mouth. Does it always sound so lovely? Like I sometimes feel like I'm, saying it with all the conviction that I possibly can. And yet it's just not, mm. it's not being understood. Um, I think, I mean, I hear from my staff and from my clients that I do, they're always like, yeah, what she said. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's what I meant. Right. And so I, I think I have a pretty good ability to channel what's in someone's heart and like maybe articulate the words for them in a way that they hoped for, because I don't have the emotional baggage to weed through that I can just filter through and find the things that you really want your partner to know that you care about them. And I'm sort of the vehicle for that. I, I view that as my role. So I get a lot of practice. So maybe that's part of it because I get to hang out with clients all day. So yes, you do. You do get a lot of practice. <laughs> What's interesting is that you left a very successful career in insurance, uh, property insurance claim adjusting yeah. to 
where you sit now as a Gottman method therapist. Yeah. Was that a difficult transition for you? And I think that working in the corporate world is what made sense when I was younger because I have a bachelor's in drama and that's such an incredibly marketable degree. I didn't know you had a bachelor's in drama. I have a bachelor's in musical theater. Oh, hello. Are you a San Diego State (laughs) alumni like me? Well, I for my master's, but I got my bachelor's at Syracuse. Okay. So yes, I, and I took a big, you know, I'm like, what does one do with that when I didn't want to move to LA and wait tables forever or move to New York and be in the cold. So I did the thing that made sense. And I listened to my very conservative parents and I went and worked in the corporate world and working in insurance, I kind of got an opportunity to be a therapist without knowing it. And it just sort of organically happened from there. So yes, at times it seems weird that I went from the corporate world to being a therapist, but everything we do sets us up for the next thing that we're going to do in life. So I, I don't think it's a coincidence. So then my question about did the drama degree uh, benefit you another way? I think the answer has to be yes, right? I think, I mean, just a shout out for drama degrees. I think it helps you in anything in life. Like you have to learn responsibility. Here we are circling back. You can't just be like, I don't feel like showing up tonight. Can you just have somebody stand there on stage and read my lines? Um, No, you have to like learn how to work in a team. Even when you don't like it, you have to learn how to take direction. I mean, there's, I could go on, but yes, I think it set me up in life to be the person that I am because I have those traits that I learned being in in theater Mm. i have to say i feel the exact same way uh didn't end up on broadway doing musical theater but the the education and the learnings incredible Mm -hmm. from that degree Mm -hmm. so one more question one time for one more the big question what is your why ah i want to leave the world in a better place than i found it hopefully that doesn't sound too corny I really do want to normalize the need for couples therapy Mm -hmm. and not just the couple that we view as a heterosexual couple. I want everybody to have a space to have a relationship without guilt and shame or judgment. And that's kind of my driving why. I love that. That's wonderful. Thank you. Keep spreading that word, Dr. Dana. We're right behind you. We'll be the wind beneath your wings every step of the way. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And we are under you as well. So, you know, you you have that too. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us and for sharing with us. Uh, Your words are going to do us all a lot of good. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. Thank you for asking me. I, this was really fun, and I'm glad to meet you, Alex. You're nice. delightful. Oh, I already knew that. Anthony, but you're you're new to me, Alex. So <laughs> thanks for sharing some space with me. Thank you very much for that. She's more delightful than I am any day of the week. <laughs> hey, thank you for listening to Bolotified. If you haven't already, please like and subscribe. And remember to leave us your questions or comments at bolotta.com backslash podcast. Bellatified is a production of Bellata Entertainment. Hey, that's a lot of Bellata. Stay engaging. Mm-hmm.